Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me as always is Aaron Miller. I am recovering from a very hoarse throat this week and uh, my voice is coming back somewhat but I'm going to sound a little deeper than usual. Um, we are going to do a slightly shortened format because my voice probably isn't going to hold out for the full usual format. Um, we're going to do our news roundup up front and we have three uh, news items to cover there. Firstly, the news that Oculus is shutting down some of its best buy demo areas for its VR uh, system. Secondly, we're going to talk about a recent hire by Apple away from Amazon in the TV space. And then thirdly, we'll talk about the second version or, or rather Android Wear 2.0. It's not technically the second version because there have been some point releases as well, but Android Wear 2.0 and some LG watches that came out this week, which were supposed to be kind of the showcase flagship devices for that new version of Android Wear and, and talk about some of the reviews and the response to that. So that'll be our news roundup. And then we'll move on to our question of the week. And this week's question of the week is, what role should businesses play in political and social change? And this has obviously been prompted by the fairly significant intervention and um, commentary and so on that we've seen from big tech companies in particular, but also companies from outside the tech sphere in the political realm um, around the uh, Trump administration's executive orders on immigration uh, a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and so that's been in the news a lot. It's a hot topic. We're going to try to stay away from the merits of that particular issue, but we will use it as a way to talk about the broader issue of uh, why companies get involved in this kind of thing, whether they should, uh, whether it's ever effective and, and questions like that. So Aaron's been doing some research on that topic this week and he'll be talking us through some of that. So that will be our question of the week today. Um, as I say, we're going to try to stay away from the merits of specific political issues. We we've, we generally try to do that. Um, there may be some of uh, our own views that do come through during that segment, but uh, this is largely a, a broader discussion than that. And then we'll wrap up with a weekly pick. So we'll dispense with our usual third segment and just go on to our weekly pick in which I'll have a TV show to recommend. So let's start with the news roundup. And as I said, first of all, we're going to talk about the Oculus decision to remove um, some 200 of its Best Buy demo stations. So these are sort of little stations within Best Buy stores here in the US where Oculus has been demoing its virtual reality systems. Um, it's had several hundred altogether, I think 500 or so altogether, um, and is closing some 200 of those. Um, Business Insider reported this. They said that from talking to people who worked at the stores, there were many days when they didn't give a single demo. So part of the explanation is surely that it, it just hasn't been effective, that people haven't been coming to do those demos. Um, Facebook <clears throat> kind of pushed back on that a little bit and said uh, that they thought it was uh, that it was planned, it was seasonal essentially, and they're going to focus on some of the, the bigger stores and some of the, the pop, more popular markets. So two slightly different stories about that. But Aaron, what was your take on all of that? You know, I, I've been skeptical of VR uh, for a while, not not because I think it's a terrible idea, but because I don't think it has a really compelling use case yet, one that is broadly applicable to consumers. I think of VR a lot the same way I think of 3D printing. When 3D printing started becoming a lot cheaper, um, people started getting really excited about the idea of it. And it's, we're sort of imagining everybody having a 3D printer at home, and now it's become a lot more obvious that there's just not the same consumer case for that. I'm still kind of that mind when it comes to VR. Um, 
you know, there's gaming is definitely a, a, a potential use case, and I think there's room for that. And maybe it's a hardware issue right now. Um, but uh, but as it stands, um, I don't know. Like when I'm sitting in a movie, I don't want to be like looking over my shoulder, right? <laughs> like if I'm watching a movie at home, I don't mm -hmm. want to watch it in VR and have to look over my shoulder to watch the movie. I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there's a really compelling use case for it yet um, that makes it a broad consumer purchase. Um, AR, on the other hand, I think still has a lot of room and is, is very exciting. Um, but uh, VR, Oculus style, I, I don't know. I, it's just not there yet. And I'm not saying it can't ever be, but, but I just don't think there's enough of a reason for consumers to buy one of these things. Yeah, um, Ben Baharin had an interesting piece on Tech Pinions this week about... Um, the sort of current state of VR, and, and it echoes a lot of my own thoughts about this. I think the biggest thing, and it's kind of going back to our discussion about narratives last week, but there's a narrative emerging around VR, which is that it's somehow kind of failing to take off or that it's, you know, fizzling. And I think this is the problem. When you have a new technology that's inherently going to have a slow ramp to popularity, it's very easy to see, you know, signs like this, this Oculus decision as a sign that things are kind of going wrong, that things are going downhill and so on. I don't think that's what's happening. I do think it's kind of, as you say, there are a whole set of both technical and content and other obstacles and barriers that need to be overcome. Um, and I think this is just early days still. And I think partly it's about hype in the industry around VR and so on. I think a lot of that's fed, frankly, by the media rather than companies themselves. If you look at or talk to most of the companies that are involved in this space, they're mostly pretty realistic about how fast this is going to grow. You know, Mark Zuckerberg on, on the last Facebook earnings call was kind of saying, this is a 10-year timeline and there's really nothing that we can do to kind of collapse that and bring that forward. Um, you know, and he wasn't talking about, you know, any sort of VR. Obviously, there's VR in the market today, but I think he was talking about kind of the mainstreaming of it. So I think he's very realistic about it. I think a lot of the other companies are realistic about it. But the media drives this narrative of VR is really hot. And then when it fails to take off in the way that they've said it will, then the, suddenly the narrative becomes VR is fizzling and failing and so on. And, and the reality, as I say, is just this is a, a product that's going to take a long time to ramp for a whole range of reasons. I think the sad thing about the Oculus demo stations shutting down is VR is one of those things that you can describe it all you want. But the only thing that's ever going to convince you that it's a useful or interesting or amazing technology is if you actually try it out. And this is one of the biggest challenges with VR is it's far too expensive for people to try it out themselves with a purchase, unless it's a mobile VR, that tends to be a fairly limited experience. And so things like this, is demo stations in Best Buy, they've done some in airports as well. You know, those are gonna be critical to actually getting people to understand what it is, understand the, the value proposition. And, and the fact that there's gonna be less places to experience that is actually a, a bad thing. And hopefully it's something that will, will come back in time as well. I think it will when the when there are things to show people other than sort of gee whiz things, right? And right, I think that's right. part of the problem right now is a lot of the stuff that's being shown is the gee whiz, like, hey, there's a dinosaur, right, <laughs> right kind of yeah. thing. Or that's, gaming. A lot of it's, you know, hardcore gaming, which if you're into that right. kind of thing is, is already compelling. But if you're not, it, it leaves you cold, basically. So, right. yeah. All right, well, let's talk about a second news roundup topic, which is this hire um, by Apple from Amazon, and it's you know worth noting we've seen a lot of stories, and we had a question of the week a couple of weeks ago about you know hiring away from Apple, and there was another departure this week. John Solomon, who was running business sales at Apple, uh, left this week after a couple of years there. Um, he'd come from HP originally, and I remember a lot of people kind of saying you know printer salesman as an Apple executive, you know, but 
Um, the reality is the skill set here is much less about the products than it is about uh, understanding channels into business and various other things like that. But anyway, he's leaving. But at the same time, Apple has hired somebody from Amazon um, who used to run uh, the, uh, the Apple TV, uh, excuse me, the Fire TV Fire business TV. there. And so um, there's now going to be running product for Apple TV. And uh, this guy's name is Timothy D. Twerdal. Um, so we've got another Timothy D, I guess, at uh, Apple now. Um, but Timothy Twerdal, and he used to run the Fire TV unit at Amazon. He's now going to run Apple TV product marketing. And uh, that's, you know, an interesting thing in itself, the kind of hire away from Amazon in the space. Um, but the other interesting thing is that he's not coming into an empty spot. He's fr he's replacing a guy called uh, Pete Destad, who has been running that, and he's not leaving Apple. He's just moving over to uh, helping EDQ with some kind of content deal stuff. So, you know, this is notable not just for the hiring somebody away and this kind of whole story around hiring and departures among executives and so on. It's also notable because it seems to be deliberately designed to free somebody up to go focus on presumably TV content deals, which. You know, we've we've said numerous times that Apple seems to need to focus on right now. Yeah, I think uh, I, you know, it, I, people are reading this as very encouraging uh, that Apple might be doing something. I know you're really optimistic about a, an Apple TV service coming this year. Um, I, I think I, I think there's a lot of room besides just the TV service for the Apple TV platform to grow. I think gaming is another good example of that. And part of the limitations on the gaming side are technical ones. I won't be surprised if we end up seeing something more hardware-oriented um, when it comes to the Apple TV, trying to sort of broaden or deepen its appeal that way. Um, but uh, like this might be the year Apple, the Apple TV supports 4K, for example, right. and, and getting out ahead in that regard. And so, I don't know, I you know, it. I'm only a tiny bit encouraged by this, just because it's been years and years that Apple has treated the Apple TV as a, as an afterthought, by and large. And right. It's yeah. it's hard to imagine one hire like that being a sign of a dramatic change. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because this guy Destad, the guy who's going to be focusing on the content deals, but has been running Apple TV product and marketing. He, he came from Hulu, so his skill set was all about streaming services and that kind of thing. So, you know, clearly originally came in with that intention, perhaps ended up pivoting to Apple TV hardware, but, you know, now going back to content deals, you know, this is something that Apple's been working on for years. I mean, he came in 2013, so he's been there for three plus years, and, um, you know, nothing's really happened that we can see from the outside with regard to TV content deals. And so, um, you know, yeah, I think your healthy dose of skepticism is probably good. I think... Uh, you know, we'll believe it when we see it. And I'm less, I guess, more accurately, I'm less optimistic that Apple will do something and more convinced that Apple should do something. And right. that's not always the same thing. So I think this is the year that Apple should finally put a, a video subscription service into the market, but I'm not necessarily predicting that they will. I think I think they really should at this point. I think it's getting to the point where it was sort of a year or two before the Beats acquisition where it's like, why aren't they doing this? And they finally belatedly did get into music I feel like we're kind of heading down the same path with video where it's like the time is long past when they should have got into this game and it's going to be a big year for this space because you've got YouTube and Hulu and potentially Amazon and others getting into the space and those are going to be big players and so if Apple's not there it's more of the market that goes a different way so um, you know I, I think it, it's a good time for, the get, for them to get into it. Yeah it's a shame that they can't get into it by acquisition the way they did with music streaming and beats. Yeah. Um, because for Apple to, to acquire its way into a TV service, they would have to 
essentially buy a satellite or or cable TV company, and there's yeah. no way Apple would ever want no. that. No, that doesn't, just doesn't seem likely, does it? Um, okay, well, let's move on to our third news roundup topic, which is, as I said, the launch of Android Wear 2.0 and a couple of different smartwatches from LG. There was also a much less covered um, watch from Verizon um, that launched, uh, I think it was called Wear 24. Uh, it was built by, I think, Quanta, their ODM partner. Um, so they, they also launched one, but there was the LG watches that really were the focus of most of the reviews that I saw. Um, the reviews really weren't very good. Um, you know, the hardware, the, the LG watches, there are two options. One is very big, uh, like comically big almost, um, and bulky, and that's the Sport, and it's the one that has all the clever new hardware features like NFC and LTE and so on, um, but it's just hugely clunky and, and big and, and no swappable straps or anything like that, so you're kind of stuck with the look as it is. The, uh, the sleeker looking watch um, is still looks a bit cheap apparently and uh, is, it costs less but also is missing a lot of those new hardware features so you can't pay with it, it doesn't have LTE and so on so the usual trade-off between shoving everything possible into something and, and making it enormous but capable um, and then the sort of sleeker but less capable device and you know, it feels like we're still making these bad trade-offs in the Android Wear world. Um, there, there are some good enhancements, and we've known about these for a while in Android Wear 2, but it sounds like the software itself is pretty buggy at this point and has some other flaws and so on as well. So, you know, the Verge review is kind of this classic of sort of criticizing the stuff all the way through and then giving it a 7.1 rating <laughs> out of 10, where the Apple Watch Series 2 is a 7.5. So, you know, this this kind of weird grading on a curve that we see with some of these products is, is stuck, is stuck is sticking around or at least is back again now. But Aaron, I don't know what you took away from those reviews this week. Well, I think the, 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 the verge comparison between the Apple watch and these new LG watches is, is, is a symptom of the smartwatch category more than just the verge grading on a curve. Like that grading on a curve is still happening. It's, I think the problem, right, is not so much that, that the Apple Watch isn't better in 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 dr- dramatic ways than these other watches with their obvious flaws. I, I think the bigger problem is that the Verge score for the Apple Watch just reflects the lack of upside that a lot of people see in the smartwatch category generally. I, you know, I, I think if it's like a if it's like a smartphone, the 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 value and utility of a great smartphone in your life is still so much more dramatic than that of a smart watch. And that's the comparison everybody is still making. I think everybody still, ex- you know, I, th- I think everybody is still thinking of smart watches in the context of smartphones. And there's no way to compare those things in, in right. terms of utility. And maybe, maybe in five years there will be a way because there will be some amazing new advancement in display technology and battery technology so that a smart watch could keep up with a smartphone. But as it stands right now, that's just not that's just not an option, and and so I think the struggle with the category, and and even the complaints about Android Wear, uh, 2.0, have a lot more to do with the category than they do about the specific entrance into this. And and I'm not saying that LG couldn't have made these watches better, and and I'm sure that uh, that future Android manufacturers are going to be making better ones. But uh, the struggle is still mostly around the category. There's, there are a bunch of people who really like them. But the question is, why aren't there a lot more people liking them? And there's still not a good answer to that question. 
Yeah, no, I wrote a piece for Tech Opinions this week off the back of these launches called Wither Wearables and basically saying kind of where are we right now with smartwatches as a category sort of narrowly within wearables and then kind of why hasn't wearables as a, a broader category really taken off in the way that a lot of forecasts from two, three years ago said it would and, you know, talked through a bunch of different things. But you're absolutely right, you know, this is... This is clearly a much more niche category than people thought it would be. Um, that applies to smartwatches specifically, but wearables in general. It's very fitness-oriented still, whether you're thinking of smartwatches or other wearables. You know, face-worn stuff basically doesn't exist today, um, you know, in any meaningful sort of numbers, even though, you know, forecasts from several years ago were saying sort of 5, 10 million in various categories there. Um, you know, the, the wearable cameras that were doing the rounds a couple of years ago never took off. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just hasn't happened. And so, um, you know, it's and it's basically because the main driving force behind these things was was the vendors and the component makers. You know, it wasn't customer demand. There's no customer pull here at all. And, you know, Apple's managed to find a niche that's pretty decent size um, in the context of the overall watch market, but in the context, as you say, of the smartphone market, it's tiny. And it's really not growing very much. You know, they're, they're sort of, if you go sort of trailing four-quarter shipments with the Apple Watch, they're pretty much steady at around 11, 12 million. Um, you know, it's not growing right now. It's a decent revenue earner for Apple, but it's nothing big. And they're by far the biggest player in that market. And it just isn't hitting the mainstream because the value proposition's still pretty narrow. Um, and, you know, that can still change. You know, I mean, these, these new LG watches don't do a great job with LTE, but... You know, give it another two two years maybe and we'll see LTE technology get small enough and battery efficient enough that it is plausible to put it in a very small, sleek looking, uh, you know, watch style device. And then suddenly, you know, that can be independent of the phone in more scenarios and in more ways. And that gets more interesting. You know, the chips get smaller and more powerful so that apps actually load quickly. And again, with their own connectivity can be independent and, and everything just faster and, and more compelling. You know, there, there are some ways in which this, this space can move forward but for now it feels like it's it's narrowed quite considerably from the original vision for it and i don't see that changing in the next year or two and you know even within that very narrow environment it feels like android wear is still far behind what apple watch is delivering in terms of the combination of utility and then just style and the look and, and performance and so on yeah I, I you know i think the problem for the watch category and, and the wearable category is it's an ecosystem problem because of the physical constraints of a watch, it, its its capabilities and its usefulness needs to be tied to everything else around it. I think smart homes, for example, um, are a way for watches to be a lot more compelling. Um, I think better, you know, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> better assistant technology like a much improved Siri or or, uh, or Google Assistant, you know, Cortana, whatever it is. I, th I think those are other areas where. The ecosystem needs to get a lot richer, and then the watch becomes an entry point or a hub for all this sort of ecosystem activity that's made possible. That, that That's where I think watches have a lot of potential, because yeah. accessing that kind of stuff with your watch is a lot better than having to pull a smartphone out of your pocket or to yell across the room at yeah. a, you know, a standalone speaker. And, and so that's where watches have a lot of... Have, a, have the potential for a lot of impact. And I think, I think ecosystem eventually will be the killer app for smartwatches. Mm, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I, I, that was another thing I said in my Tech Opinions piece is I see these, not just the watches, but things like AirPods and so on as well as kind of extensions of the smartphone. They're a way to take certain functions from the smartphone and extend it into places where it's more easily accessible 
on your body, essentially. And, you know, and the same thing applies with ambient displays and various other things. You know, those could potentially be part of that picture over time too. But kind of taking things that the smartphone does reasonably well, but you have to pull it out of your pocket, often unlock it and so on. And you just either put those on your wrist and your ear so that they're permanently there and accessible and available in a way that's sort of intimate and personal to you. And so I do think there's more that can be done there as well. But as you say, it all has to tie in together as part of a broader... Right ecosystem these can't be sort of disconnected devices that try to each do their own thing in, in a very sort of fragmented sort of way all right well let's move on to our question of the week and as i said up front the question is what role should businesses play in political and social change and again this is prompted by everything that's happened over the last two weeks with the tech industry weighing in on the uh, immigration policy decisions from the new um, administration here in the u.s um you know, that's the context, but we're not going to talk about that specific issue, or at least the merits of it in any detail. Um, we both have views on those. Um, we're going to try to largely keep those to ourselves. Um, if you didn't like it the last time we um, talked about a more political issue, um, you may want to skip this episode. Um, we understand that's not why most of you listen to this, and uh, that's totally fine. Everybody has their own views on this stuff. But as I say, the focus here is mostly on the pros and cons of companies getting involved in some of this stuff generally rather than on um, the merits of this specific issue. So uh, Aaron, as I say, has been doing some research around this topic, and, and we're going to be talking through the details of some of this. Um, so Aaron, I mean, I've given a brief introduction to this already, but you can perhaps go a little deeper. Why are we talking about this topic this week? Yeah, well, it is coming out of the news, but I think what it prompted it as a topic I wanted to tackle actually came from a specific blog post by um, Molly Wood. So um, a lot of people in the tech world know Molly Wood because she's been a, a, a tech correspondent for C CNET and then the New York Times, and now she's a marketplace. She's also the backup host for Kai Rizdahl in on the Marketplace radio program. Um, she uh, wrote a great blog post referencing a discussion that she and Kai Rizdahl had on a podcast called Make Me Smart, um, essentially questioning, the, er, er, digging into this idea of the the business of moral capitalism and sort of questioning whether or not companies should have a role in, um, in political issues like this. In fact, they cast it in a really interesting way, um, basically making the case, and Molly would put it this way, she said, uh, the central question is whether business becomes one of the systems of checks and balances in the United States. It's a really interesting question, right? Because we have a legislative, a, an executive, and a judicial branch that are all that are all co-equal in the way they essentially, you know, govern our country. And and Mollywood's proposition was this idea that business is a fourth uh, member of those checks and balances. I, it, it obviously, I, I don't think it's co-equal in that sense, but the way Kai Rizdal described it was uh, is that we have a capitalist constitutional system. And it's an interesting idea that you can't disentangle those two things in American politics. And, and so that's kind of the heart of this, is that that prompted that, plus with everything that's going on in the news, I, I think it's an interesting issue. The, the, the immigration order um, uh, uh, that gave rise to a whole bunch of businesses getting involved, I, obviously, so I, I assume everybody's familiar with this, but I'll give a very quick summary. Essentially, President Trump signed an executive order um, not long ago, temporarily suspending immigration from seven countries, predominantly Muslim countries, where there were concerns about our ability to vet the immigrants coming from those countries. 
the order had issues on its rollout, <clears throat> there were um, uh, legal permanent residents, like green card holders, who were barred from reentering the country because of uh, a misinterpretation. Uh, and in fact, according to some reports, disagreement within the administration about how the immigration order should apply. Um, eventually, permanent residents, green card holders from those seven countries were allowed to come in. Um, but there are still, um, by various reports, uh, hundreds and th or thousands or tens of thousands of people who are being affected by this order and not able to travel uh, from these countries or any other country if they're a passport holder from these seven countries back into the United States. Um, the, the, the order was opposed um, by the Attorney General of the state of Washington. Uh, for that case, uh, Amazon was, and, uh, was made a, a, essentially a witness and sort of explained why they were suffering as a business because of this. Um, the, the, and, and the state of Washington requested a temporary restraining order on, on uh, the immigration order on the executive orders until until the merits of the case could be heard. And that's an important point to emphasize in all of this. There are a lot of people saying that courts have now ruled that this that this immigration order is unconstitutional. And that has not actually been determined yet by a federal court. What a court has determined, the, the district court judge determined that there is a likelihood of irreparable harm that outweighs um, the benefits of keeping the order in place for the time being, and that's why that's the legal justification for the temporary restraining order. The the Trump administration appealed the that decision on the on the TRO on the restraining order, uh, holding back the the immigration ban, um, and that went to the 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 Ninth Circuit uh, uh, Federal Appeals. And a three-judge panel just yesterday, um, uh, in a 3-0 decision, upheld the restraining order, which leaves the ban suspended for now. So, immigration since that district judge order has been has been uh, re-enabled, and it will continue to be that way. Now, this this could be appealed. The restraining order could be appealed to the Supreme Court. We'll see if that happens or not. I don't think the Trump administration has announced if they plan to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, but the case still has to be heard on the merits. Now, that's all just really quick context on um, the where companies were involved. Um, when a case gets appealed in the federal court system, people who aren't directly involved in the case itself have the opportunity to file an Amici brief, which is essentially saying, hey, we want to, we want the appeals court to hear our opinion about the law and how it might affect us, even though we're not actually parties to the case. Uh, there were a group of uh, tech companies that joined in on this opinion um, through a, a shared legal brief. In the end, 127 companies uh, signed this amicus brief um, supporting the restraining order in that, or phrased another way, in opposition to the Trump's executive order on immigration. Um, there were a bunch of really notable and big companies in this. Um, it, it included, um, sorry, just pulling it up here. It included uh, Uber, Airbnb, Yelp, Square, Reddit, uh, Kickstarter, um, Apple, Netflix, Salesforce, 
um, uh, and then a bunch of uh, Asana, um, uh, Atlassian, a, a bunch of very large and, and smaller but notable um, tech companies. So it's interesting because this is primarily tech companies, but it's also because this case is being decided in the Ninth Circuit, and that's where a lot of tech companies are because they're based in California. Anyway, the the order itself is is or sorry, the brief itself is really interesting um, because of the the way the justification for the their reasoning is laid out. And in fact, in the second paragraph of the brief, um, the the essential argument is summarized. And it says this, um, and so this is the company speaking to the court saying that the restraining order should stay in place. This or, The order represents, meaning Trump's executive order, represents a significant departure from the principles of fairness and predictability that have governed the immigration system of the United States for more than 50 years. And the order inflicts significant harm on American business, innovation, and growth as a result. The order makes it more difficult and expensive for U.S. companies to recruit, hire, and retain some of the world's best employees. It disrupts ongoing business operations, and it threatens companies' ability to attract talent, business, and investment to the United States. And so summarizing that argument, they're essentially saying that the, that the executive order is bad for business. Right. So... I mean, we, we kind of, our big picture question here is what role should business play in political and social change? And this is, you know, this paragraph at least and, and the amicus brief in general um, sort of very much focus on the business aspects of this, right? They're kind of saying this is bad for our business and this is why. I mean, there was, I think, one reference to fairness near the beginning of that paragraph, but the vast majority of the paragraph was about this hurts our business, makes it harder to hire and um, compete and, and all the rest of it. And so, you know, is this really just about business interests? I mean, it's the only reason that these companies are weighing in here um, that, you know, it affects their business in this way. Is, and is that kind of a good way to think about why and when businesses get involved in this kind of thing? Uh, you know, it's so arguably that's true. Um, but I think a better way to describe it is that business effects are always a necessary component for companies to get involved, but are not but are often not the only reason for companies to get involved. I, I think a good example of this uh, was the corporate opposition to Proposition 8 in California. Um, uh, and so it's been eight years now since that, uh, I guess almost nine, um, since that issue was so prominent in the state of California. Proposition 8, if you don't remember, was, if listeners don't remember, was the, was the proposed constitutional amendment to the California state constitution um, the amendment would essentially make uh, uh, gay marriage in the state illegal. Um, both uh, that was a voter ballot initiative, so it meant that voters were going to decide on that issue, and um, so there was a lot of lobbying and advertising on both sides of the issue, trying to persuade voters to 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 choose one position or the other. Um, both Apple and Google opposed the ballot measure to ban gay marriage. Um, and uh, there definitely was a business case in the position that they held. Um, both companies had a lot of employees that would be directly affected by the proposed amendment. Um, there were concerns expressed that companies would, that, or sorry, that, that these employees would quit and move it somewhere else in the, in the country where gay marriage was legal um, and that their businesses would suffer as a result. But what's really interesting in both Apple's case and Google's case, is how they described their reasoning for opposing Proposition 8. Um, even though both companies uh, arguably had a business case to support their reasoning, 
they both cast it as an issue of fundamental rights and not just business interests. In fact, quoting from Apple's statement at the time, Apple was among the first California companies to offer equal rights and benefits to our employees' same-sex same -sex partners. And we strongly believe that a person's fundamental rights, including the right to marry, should not be affected by their sexual orientation. Uh, Google's statement at the time was, while we respect the strongly held beliefs that people have on both sides of this argument, we see this fundamentally as an issue of equality. We hope that California voters will vote no on Proposition 8. We should not eliminate anyone's fundamental rights, whatever their sexuality, to marry the person they love. Um, it, it, what's really clear and deeply embedded in both those statements is that they weren't making just a business case, they were making a moral case uh, about their position. Right. And that seems to be the pattern. When you look at the way companies talk about political issues, when they get involved in them, or, or, any, or social issues more generally, there seems to always be a business case that sort of prompts or motivates or drives their involvement but they very rarely limit their their arguments to just business cases. Like they very rarely say this is just good business. They usually also make moral arguments for their position. In fact, if you fast forward to the current issue of immigration, you're seeing the exact same approach. All the companies that have made statements on this issue in opposition, <clears throat> and also the companies who have made statements in support, have, have not just made business cases, they've made moral cases. Um, moral arguments supporting their position. Even Goldman Sachs, um, who has, uh, well, actually, let me back up. So, so with the current immigration issue, there are clearly business, there are business issues at stake. Google has reported that it's had 200 employees that were prevented from traveling uh, back into the United States because of their executive order. Um, but again, you look at their statements, and it's very different. It's, it's not just business. Even Goldman Sachs, who has multiple alumni in Trump's administration, um, made this statement through the CEO. If the order were to become or remain effective, I recognize that there is potential for disruption to the firm, and especially to some of our people and their families. I want to assure all of you that we will work to minimize such disruption to the extent we can within the law and are focused on supporting our colleagues and their families who may be affected. So there's the business case argument up front. We have colleagues that are being affected by this, and it's not, and, 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 it's, and our firm cannot remain effective, is what he said. But then he went on and said this, let me close by quoting from our business principles, but as I, as I read this, pay attention to what's in the moral case that's in, embedded in it. In it. For us to be successful, our men and women must reflect the diversity of the communities and cultures in which we operate. That means we must attract, retain, and motivate people from many backgrounds and perspectives. Being diverse is not optional, it's what we must be. And then Blank Frank continues, now is a fitting time to reflect on those words and principles and the principles that underlie them. Now, in fairness, that was a statement made by Goldman's CEO uh, who backed Hillary Clinton in the presidential campaign last year. Um, but again, it reflects the same pattern. There are key business interests that gets a company involved, but they are always intertwined with principles of social justice as perceived by the company, or maybe better put by the leadership of the company, and that's an issue we need to talk about before we're done. Yeah, no, I, I think in some ways, I think now is a great time to talk about that because <clears throat> when we talk about moral, moral issues, moral statements and so on, the, the huge question that kind of hangs over that is whose morality, right? So. Um, these are moral judgments. Ultimately, these are moral opinions that people hold and then communicate. 
And, you know, that that was Lloyd Blankfein, as you say. He was a, a Clinton backer during the election. And so we know his political views, at least to some extent. But he's speaking as the CEO of Goldman. And so, you know, if Tim Cook puts out a statement, if, um, you know, Sergey Brin goes and marches with protesters and so on, you can't really separate the kind of individual role from their role as, as leaders of those companies. And yet, you know, for all that uh, the U.S. courts have held in recent years that corporations are people, uh, for the perspective of, of free speech, um, the reality is they're not people. They're, they're organizations that have shareholders, they have employees, they have executives, they have customers. And there's this big question about kind of whose morality the company and its leadership should reflect. Should it be the, the personal moral decisions of the leadership itself? Should it be shareholders or somebody else? And this is a really fascinating business ethics question, and, and one I talk about with my students in my classes even. And you know, it's it's tricky because the role of a the role of a company, um, uh, by one argument, the the the, the most uh, sort of vocal proponent of this um, uh, was uh, was Milton Friedman. It, the, the role there's one position that the role of the company is just to maximize value to shareholders. Um, and, and the idea that a company would then step into the political arena with a purpose other than that um, calls into question this problem because, especially with publicly traded companies, there are there are a huge diversity of political interests and positions, and um, they are, it's impossible for a company to represent all of those uh, in a in a in a consistent way. Uh, in, in an equal way, and so what's eventually what's what's really happening here is is the the executives of the companies are the ones making these choices about the political involvement of the corporations. But again, notice, and this takes me back to the point we were just talking about, recognizing their obligation to shareholders. Every single company still positions business interests as part of their reasoning, if if not their if not the foundation of their reasoning. And they'll make statements like the one that Blankfein made, which is that, you know, upholding these core social principles or values is good business. And, uh, and so obviously people disagree about that. Um, I think from an ethics standpoint, if the core argument is about effective business and whether or not social, certain social values promote or, heart or harm good business, in one sense, you can think about that as being equivalent to a manager taking a um, a certain strategic position that doesn't have a moral weight to it, right? Like thinking, oh, we need to do lots of overseas investment. That's the best way to grow the company. And, and so that's one way you can look at this is if it really, if the fundamental case really is a business case, then there are going to be differences of opinion about how to best maximize the business uh, fortunes of the company. Um, and that would be true for social issues as well. And that's why you're always finding these executives coming back to the business case, even as they espouse social issues. And they're essentially saying, we think this is the best approach for business. And in the end, if shareholders don't agree with that, then, then, then you know, their recourse is to appoint directors to the board that would choose different executives. So, yeah. so it, it, it still is, it's pretty thin gruel for somebody who, who, right, who is a shareholder in a company. I, there were a lot, of, a lot of people who supported Prop 8 in California. In fact, it won at the ballot. Right. And there were, a lot of, there were a lot of Californians that either worked for Apple or owned stock in Apple 
they were disappointed by Apple's position and also their $100,000 donation to the, to the opposition campaign, the opposition to Prop 8 campaign. Um, yeah. It, it's, but uh, um, b- business doesn't have the same, um, the same democratic foundation, right, that, uh, mm-hmm. that we have for our elected officials, for example. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think another aspect of this is that the <clears throat> I think the tech media in particular has a has a particular political bent for the most part. There are exceptions, sure. but I think you know there is this. It's a lot of it's in Silicon Valley. It's it's in California. It's one of the more liberal states in the United States, um, and I think they the media that is they exert pressure um, in their own right. You know, there was a lot of criticism in the first couple of days after the order of companies that weren't acting quickly enough to release statements that weren't, or whose statements were too uh, kind of mealy-mouthed in their view. Um, and so I think, and it's fascinating to me too, that if you look at the, the amicus brief in Washington, um, you know, a lot of the companies, almost all of the tech companies in there were either consumer-focused or small sort of startup-y type tech companies if they're in the enterprise space. There are very few pure enterprise companies in there. So IBM wasn't there, I believe. I think HP may have been, but Oracle wasn't. Um, you know, And so there's also a different culture between, say, the consumer tech industry and the enterprise tech industry, and, and uh, perhaps a different degree of scrutiny, a different degree of um, activism by employees and so on. And I know there, there are employees at Oracle and, and other companies who have kind of said, you know, we need to be doing more, we need to be speaking out about this. But it does feel that there's this big cultural component in Silicon Valley and, and the broader sort of consumer tech industry that doesn't perhaps exist quite to the same extent in other industries. And, you know, the wireless carriers, for example, have all completely stayed out of this issue. Um, you know, none of them were, were, were part of the 127 companies, even though they're some of the biggest, quote-unquote, tech companies in the country. So it's, it's interesting the degree to which the, the culture uh, within different parts of the tech industry has an effect in terms of that morality and those moral decisions as well. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and this gets back to the business case issue, um, because I think there's, there, there's a risk on the other side of this, which is that uh, customers will disfavor your product because of the political position that you've taken. And right. so and Starbucks faces problem. So Starbucks yeah. announced a, a hiring policy with a preference for, for uh, refugees and uh, there are a lot of Americans who were offended by that idea because that meant there were Americans who would lose out, right, and right. to to refugees uh, in mm-hmm. a hiring process. Yeah, and uh, and I don't know how far that proposed um, boycott has gotten, but but it reflects the the reason for caution. You know, right. there's always this current of there's always this undercurrent of the of the business prospects in yeah. these choices and it's always going to be there and it, right. it's not very often that companies make the make the make a purely moral case a purely ethical case for right. any position they're taking on a political issue yeah i mean just and the counterpoint to the starbucks example is uber right so back in the tech industry again you know uber actually got hit very hard um, and i yeah. think it was really a combination of factors and we don't need to go into the details but travis kalanix on one of trump's advisory councils his response was sort of weaker in some ways than the other responses in terms of its condemnation of the immigration order. The company still kind of came out against it, but it was mostly about the business case rather than the moral issues, and it, it felt a bit more 
uh, kind of even-handed uh, than some of the other statements that came out. And then there was this unfortunate thing in New York where Uber kind of was trying to help people get to the airport for the protests and for other reasons, and uh, in the process kind of stomped all over a strike by New York taxi drivers. And, of course, that's a lobby that doesn't like Uber anyway, and so they right. then you know, um, uh, mobilize people to kind of oppose Uber and you have this whole delete Uber thing going on. But again, there are, uh, you, you know, you're kind of darned if you do and you're darned if you don't to some extent. You know, Starbucks comes out with a very strong statement in favor of refugees, gets hammered over it. Uber isn't strong enough in its condemnation of the order, it gets hammered over it, you know. So there are business consequences on both sides. I guess, um, so it's clear that there can be a business impact either way. Is it clear that businesses intervening actually makes a difference, I guess, to look at this a different way? So, you know, are there cases where businesses intervening in some of these political and social issues actually have brought about change? Do you seem to have sort of swayed the argument or changed the outcome? Uh, no, it's not clear. That, that I mean, <laughs> it's certainly not the case that it always works. In fact, in the amicus brief that was filed by these 127 companies, it's not obvious that the um, that the brief was actually all that persuasive to the appeals court. Um, they didn't reference it in the opinion. Now they, it was a brief opinion, but I, but uh, the fundamental issue there had very little to do with the business prospects of the companies that signed that brief. Um, the uh, but and if you look, if we look in recent history and more distant history, it's a mixed record as far as the effect businesses can have on on these sorts of social issues or political issues. North Carolina, for example, faced immense business pressure over its infamous bathroom bill, um, which uh, was a bill designed to essentially require transgender individuals to use the bathroom that correlated with their birth gender. Um, and, uh, and, and it wasn't just tech companies that were getting involved there, like the ones that we've been talking about. It was, it was you know, the NFL and the NBA even got involved and, uh, and threatened... Uh, you know, boycotts of North Carolina. The, the North Carolina government faced a huge amount of pressure, but yet they just recently had an opportunity to repeal that law, and uh, the legislature held firm, and the law is still in place. Uh, Indiana, on the other hand, had its law um, on uh, religious protection uh, very quickly repealed. And, and this was a law... Uh, so the idea with the law was to was to protect religious business owners who uh, had a religious or moral opposition to providing their goods or services to to anyone based on their religious beliefs. Well, the obvious and most prominent way that that was going to be happening was, uh, at least in the news, the most prominent way was was um, religious individuals not wanting to provide services for for gay people, especially surrounding like gay weddings. Um, and and the the business pressure that was put on Indiana was huge, and and arguably had a very strong influence on on that law getting repealed very quickly. Um, you know, it, it, historically, it's an interesting record. I think one of the coolest cases that I think we can agree upon as as being really important and valuable was the um, the the uh, the the um, disinvestment in South Africa. Uh, in order to oppose apartheid. This was a movement that actually started way back in the 60s, um, but didn't really come to full fruition until the mid-80s, when a bunch of companies essentially removed foreign investment um, from South Africa in order to enhance pressure on the South African government to, to dismantle apartheid. And 
there are really strong arguments made by people who've researched this that it was the it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Obviously, South Africa had been facing pressure for decades from all kinds of sources as related to its apartheid policies. But uh, in the end, it was it, it, there are arguments made that it was it was business withdrawing from the South African economy, and there were arguments against that as well. Even though Congress had actually passed a bill um, uh, uh, supporting this approach, this economic approach to to South Africa. Uh, President Reagan opposed it. And there were a lot of other people that opposed it, saying it was actually just hurting the people that, that we were trying to help. Um, but in the end, it worked um, and had a huge influence and tipped the scale in such a way that uh, apartheid was dismantled soon after. Well, it had a lot to do with the fact that, that over a, a three-year period, foreign investment was cut in half. And that, that's a really dramatic effect to have on an economy, and all the policymakers had to sit up and pay attention to that. And it was, it was harder for them to carry on business as usual. So, so I mean, the answer is it doesn't always work, but it often works. Um, right. The fact that it works is actually something that we shouldn't take it at face value as being a good thing, though. <laughs> so okay. and that, and I think that gets us to the next question, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, should, yeah, no, I mean it's an, it's go a, ahead. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. I mean, to some extent, each of those examples where it did have an effect were – about companies being able to make decisions about whether to invest or not in a particular market, whether that be a state or a country in the case of South Africa. In the case of, say, this immigration order, for example, um, it's much harder for U.S.-based companies to suddenly say, well, we won't do business in the U.S. anymore. Um, and so they don't have the same kind of leverage in that sense that they do in, in some of those other cases, and that does seem to make a difference. But I guess, you know, we talked about some of the pros and cons earlier in terms of you know, sort of moral issues and taking a moral stand and the potential downsides to that. But kind of, have you reached a conclusion have you done, as you've done this research? I mean, ultimately, should companies be politically active in this way or not? Uh, you know, this is, this is kind of like the question I get in my business ethics classes. You know, what's the right answer to this dilemma we're facing? And uh, it drives students crazy that it's, you know, it's complicated. And it's complicated because the details matter. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think it's, not that, it's not that we can't come up with good tools for figuring out the answers, but the problem is we can't come up with a one-size-fits-all response to, to this question. You know, should companies be politically active? It depends, but it depends on real things that really matter. And there are trade-offs that every company should consider when they're evaluating this choice. Um, I think obligations to shareholders is one of those questions. There's a moral obligation to shareholders, not just a financial one. And, uh, and, and the fact that shareholders have diverse political interests, I think companies really should consider, okay, I'm going to be speaking, like an executive should consider it. I'm gonna be speaking contrary to the political desires of a great number of my bosses, essentially, right, my owners, right. Mm -hmm. and, and and obviously there's a right to free speech, and ownership shouldn't be a reason to to squelch that. But an executive doesn't just have the power of speech; the executive has power of control over the company's finances and how how its resources are dedicated to certain activities. And that executive needs to weigh that seriously when they consider it. And that's not to say that they should be then sort of browbeaten into inaction. Because, you know, everybody's, there's always going to be some shareholder that disagrees. Um, but the desires and interests, not just financially, but also politically, should be taken into account by an executive when they're trying to decide mm -hmm. what to do. And I think, again, you see this reflected because executives are always interweaving the business case into the moral cases that they're making for a particular position. 
Right. I think another trade-off that we need to take very seriously um, as a society is the amount of power we want to give to companies in this regard. Um, Right, this kind of goes back to your marketplace piece, right? Molly Wood's thing about kind of the fourth branch of the that, government in a way. I mean, kind of that's right, because right now companies in some political circles are being treated as heroes, where three years ago they were being treated as villains, where right. today it's being described as, uh, you know, as, 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 as a noble political position, where three years ago it was being described as special interests, <laughs> right? right. And, and, I mean, this is all political speech. You know, companies having lobby, hiring lobbying firms, you know, to talk with congressmen to try to get a law favorable to them. That's political speech just as much as, you know, filing an amicus brief with the Ninth Circuit over right. an immigration order. And we as a society, I think, have a hard time making a case about what political speech by companies should be acceptable and what shouldn't. Um, now, there are legality issues around lobbying. Um, and there are private enrichment issues around lobbying when it comes to our political, um, you know, elected officials. That can that that can be frustrating. I, I think the idea that speech sometimes gets extra legal, right, gets outside of the law. I, mm -hmm. I think that's an issue where there's not a lack of clarity. It's it's just a lack of of good laws that are that are reasonably enforced. Right. But by the same token, I mean, take a company like Apple, that has half a trillion dollars in the bank. That is a massive potential power when it comes to political speech that could drown out mm. a huge number of voices. Yeah, um, this was the controversy of the Citizens United Supreme Court case from uh, seven years ago. I mean, that case was controversial because it essentially opened the doors for companies to speak politically. Now, the fundamental principle there is a really important one, which is that companies are groups of people. And people shouldn't, individuals shouldn't lose their speech rights just because they're organized as a corporation. Um, but yet, when you have a huge collection of people grouped together and coordinating their speech in a way, like through a company like Apple or Google or, I don't know, you know, Starbucks or wherever else, the problem there is that that becomes a dominant voice on television, right, through advertising online. Um, and those dominant voices can overpower. Um, the less coordinated individual voices that don't have the same financial resources. And right. so that's another trade-off that we need to consider as <clears throat> society. Um, yeah, I feel like that's, that's a really important one. I mean, I think, I think when, when companies are pursuing our interests, then we're all for it, right? <laughs> so we love it. They're like, oh, great, these companies are weighing in, they're really making a difference and so on. Yeah. But, you know, we'd probably feel very differently if it was the opposite, if, it, if they were, you know, to your point, you know, whether it's, you know, financial, you know, banks, uh, you know, weighing in to oppose financial regulation um, or something else where perhaps we might oppose that, um, you know, then suddenly we feel very differently about the influence of corporations in the political process. And so, yeah, it's a very much a double-edged sword. And as I say, it's very easy to assume it'll always go our way. But when it's going the other way, it feels very different. And I think that's my biggest worry here is, you know, however you feel about the specific issue is, you know, companies are facing this enormous pressure to make statements, to intervene, to throw their weight behind causes. Well, you know, we won't always agree with those causes. And if they get into the habit of doing that, that could be a dangerous thing. But that, but that's what it is to live in a pluralistic society. I, I yeah. mean, fundamentally, it's, there's always going to be somebody speaking. And if it's not companies, it's the, the people who have been made fantastically rich by the companies. Um, right. I, I mean, if you look in the political spectrum t in the U.S. today, there are two really prominent villains on opposite ends. There's George Soros, you know, who 
you know, there have been political art- articles essentially saying he's funding a whole bunch of these protests. Um, mm-hmm. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Koch brothers, right, right. who, who uh, through industry have become billionaires, and they're very politically active in their spending. And mm-hmm. they've been a really common villain of the left. Um, the, the reality is, is w- there's always going to be a concentration of, of resources. And whether that concentration of resources is in the hands of a CEO or it's in the hands of the guy that the CEO made really wealthy, <laughs> right? Right. Um, that concentration of wealth is always going to be a key issue when it comes to political speech and activity. Um, you know, I, I think... I, I think if there is one issue that we should all get behind, and I don't think I'm getting political when I state this ought to be the position. I think there, if there's one issue that everybody should get behind, it's the need for transparency in this sort of political speech. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big problems we have because of the Citizens United decision is that it's enabled a massive amount of speech that can be entirely anonymous. Um, that, you know, this independent political spending that happens in these super PAC entities, these 501c4 entities. The problem is that that speech can be entirely anonymous. And, and, and I think the nature of our constitutional preference for spe- free speech in general should also include the right for the listeners to know who's speaking. Right. I, I think the, the identity of the person <clears throat> speaking is is essential to evaluating what's being said. Right. And the idea that billions of dollars can and have poured into our, our, our political system um, anonymously, I think, that's, I think that's something that we should all get behind. The problem is that mm-hmm. the, the only people with the power to change that are Congress, and they are the individuals incentivized to you not make that money from, transparent. Right, right. yeah. Okay, um, well, let's leave it there on that discussion. That's, that's been a really interesting discussion and, and hopefully interesting to our listeners as well. Um, thanks, Aaron, for all the work that you've done in preparing for that. Um, we'll wrap up, as I say, with our weekly pick, and this, turn, this week is my turn to recommend something. Uh, I'm going to recommend a TV show that I have been watching for a while now because I get access to some UK content that isn't available here yet, but it's about to be available here in the US. And it's a TV show called Planet Earth 2. It's a sequel of sorts to an earlier series of um, Planet Earth. This is one of those BBC nature documentaries. So if you're into that kind of thing, you'll absolutely be into this because this, this stuff just keeps getting better. If you're not into this kind of thing, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you should be. Um, but uh, these are the David Attenborough narrated documentaries. And if you don't know who David Attenborough is, look him up. I'm sure you've heard his voice before if you've watched any of these documentaries over the last 50 years or so. Um, he's sort of the figure in, in British nature programming. But uh, Planet Earth 2, we've been watching it as a family for a few weeks um, through a UK iTunes account that we still have. And uh, it's fantastic. It debuts on BBC America um, a week on Saturday, so February the 18th. Um, if you are a Snapchat user, there's a sort of a preview series that they're running on Snapchat. Um, so you'll be able to check it out there. If you're in Canada, I believe it's going to be on CBC. But uh, if you're in other markets, no doubt it'll arrive there eventually. You can find a way to get it too. But um, we've been watching this as a family, as I say, in the evenings. And there have just been so many times where we go, how did they get that shot? Um, and there's, there's a great YouTube video of, of one particular scene from the first episode where this lizard is running away from a bunch of snakes and it's just utterly compelling. So anyway, Planet Earth 2 will be on BBC America uh, February 18th uh, here in the US. It'll be various other places in, in other markets as well. 
Um, but go check it out. At the very least, go check out that YouTube video of the lizard being chased by the snakes. But uh, very, very uh, fun to watch, especially if you have kids. It's it's really great, amazing programming. And uh, in the UK version, not sure if it's going to be the same here, but in the UK version, they have this 10-minute segment at the end where they show you how they got the footage, which is always good fun as well. But uh, anyway, we'll link to that from the site, as we will to a number of the other things we've talked about today. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it, as always. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Bye-bye.